0: Let me pray. Our loving Father, we do ask this morning that as we come to your word that by your Holy Spirit you would help us to understand who you are and indeed for us to get a hold of your glorious judgment. And in particular we pray, Lord, that the events of the Exodus in Egypt would help us understand how great you are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The Hebrew name for the World Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem is Yad Vashem, which means a monument and a name. Uh, When Mandy and I visited this two years ago, it was quite overwhelming. Uh, To visit an entire museum dedicated to the systematic murder of six million people on basis of their race uh, was pretty full on, I've got to tell you. And as we walked along and we saw the striped prison uniforms and saw details of the death and how everything happened. And as we looked inside the, the cattle trucks that transported the victims, it was, we were really quite blown away by the whole horror of the whole Holocaust. And we knew, and we all knew, that the ultimate blame for this genocide rested at the feet of one evil man, Adolf Hitler. The name Hitler is synonymous with evil. I think if you asked people in the street if there was only one spot in hell, then who should go there? They'd probably say Hitler. But if there was room for 10 people, who would be the other nine? Well, I want to tell you that one of them should be Pharaoh. Pharaoh enslaved Tortured and murdered God's people in Egypt, and he stood face to face in a standoff with the Lord God. But we don't always see Pharaoh in the same light as Hitler. I think maybe it's because we we've sort of taught about Egypt and the whole Exodus and everything in Sunday school and amongst the kids and things like that. And you sort of got, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, ooh, baby, let my people go. I mean, it's kind of it's not. Quite the same as, say, Hitler, Hitler, you know, it's sort of it's um, we, we kind of don't see them in the same league, but really we should. Because Pharaoh was truly evil, truly evil. In the end, he deserved the judgment and the punishment that he and his army would receive from God. And even though we, we are face to face with such evil like this, the evil of Pharaoh and the evil of Hitler as well, I think we are still a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of divine judgment and punishment. And I've mentioned this in the past, like last week, that I think that many Christians were just a little bit uneasy and awkward about the word that Israel Folau was sending around last year, talking about hell, fire and brimstone, basically. But also, as we saw last week, that Israel Folau's message wasn't really that different from what Jesus said in the Gospels and the preaching of Peter and Paul in the book of Acts. He talked about hell and talked about repentance. And as we work through the opening chapters of the first book of the Bible, we saw that the judgment that was handed out to Adam and Eve was actually a good thing. God's judgment in Eden was good. And why is that? Because it showed his mercy... And because it showed his glory, God could have just killed all the disobedient and rebellious humans, Adam and Eve, history gone. But instead he showed mercy by delivering curses upon humans that gave them a hunger, a hunger for restoration, a hunger for redemption. And he gave them that promise, the promise that would see one of the descendants of Adam and Eve crush death. Which came true in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But God made other promises. We only briefly looked at them. There's a whole sermon series really in them. But that was from uh, from uh, Genesis chapter twelve. We saw that He promised that the descendants of Adam and Eve through Abraham would be a great nation, and they'd have a great name, and they'd have a land of their own, and through them God would bless the world. and All of Genesis is this really interesting journey of how it was going well and then not so well and tricky and a few little concerns along the way. And then, well, it ends up with the story of Joseph. And Joseph ends up in Egypt with all of God's people. And we see at the end of Genesis and the start of Exodus, the second book, that God's people had become numerous in Egypt The promises of God were coming true. There were Israelites everywhere around Egypt. And we could see that nothing was getting in the way of God reversing the curses of Genesis 3. But very quickly everything went pear-shaped yet again in the start of Exodus. And God is going to judge. We're going to see today very, very clearly God's judgment. But it's not going to be to his own people this time. It's going to be... To Pharaoh and his people, this arch enemy who will rival the serpent really in his evil. We pick it up in Exodus one, verses six and seven. We read that in time Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. The promise of many, 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 many descendants had come true. And now these descendants of Abraham were a force to be reckoned with as they populated Egypt. And that would have been fine, except the Egyptians had lost the respect for the Israelites that they had when Joseph ruled. We read in verse 8 that eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. Uh, That's bad news. It's bad news when our leaders don't read history. And that's exactly what we see here. Uh, Joseph was originally a hero for the Egyptians. But now the new king on the block didn't know anything about him. And so verse 9, he said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us. We're being swamped by Israelites and they are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us, and then they will escape from this country. The Egyptians were threatened by the Israelites. And so the king of Egypt came up with his own final solution. He roused a fear amongst the Egyptians that caused them to hate The Israelites, to turn on the Israelites. Verse 11 So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labour. We see more and more parallels between the Pharaoh and the Fuhrer. And we see this in the shocking order that Pharaoh gave to kill all male Israelite babies. Verse 22. Throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. He's not a nice guy. He is the face of evil. And that will come out even more in the verses that will come. Pharaoh, if he had his way, would be really happy if he could extinguish the nation of Israel off the face of the earth and that no one would ever know God, the true and living God. But how's God going to react to that? Well, the true and living God will keep his promises. This bozo from Egypt is not going to get in the way of Yahweh, the Lord, the true and living God. Because even what was going to happen before us was planned by God and even revealed by God to Abraham. So back in Genesis fifteen, thirteen and fourteen, verses thirteen and fourteen, we read that the Lord said to Abram, "You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. Yep, tick. Where they will be oppressed as slaves for four hundred years. But I will punish the nation. I will judge. I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will come away with great wealth." All that we're about to see happen in Egypt was planned and even revealed beforehand. And the way that God would win, the way that he would keep his promises, was by his judgment, by punishing the nation that enslaved his people. And the man to do that was Moses. Moses, he was very fortunate because he didn't get thrown into the ocean, thrown into the into the river, and he escaped a direct attack from Pharaoh when he got a bit older. And he fled off to the desert. And there he came face to face with the presence of God. And God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. I mean, technically, it's not a burning bush. It looked like it was burning, but it wasn't actually burning. But, you know, stick with me on this one. You know the story. But the point is that at this remarkable event, God Himself speaks to Moses. And He says, verse 6 Let me introduce myself to you. I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. He knew he was in the presence of the Lord of the universe, the same one who with the same voice said, let there be light, and there was. And the Lord doesn't just reveal this, he also reveals his own name, but he also reveals something about how he feels. The Lord tells us his feelings, his feelings for his own people, his covenant promised people. Verse 7, we read that the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. Now, I wonder what it must have been like for some of those Israelites as they suffered there at the hands of the Egyptians. I wonder whether or not they kind of had their own Sunday Sabbath school or whatever, where they, they really understood the teachings of the well, what we have in Genesis today. Did they really know about the Lord? I'm sure that they did. And I'm sure that they cried out to God because he told us right there that they've cried out to him in distress. And they've probably wondered, how long, O oh Lord, do you hear my prayers? Do you love us? Do you love me? Will you rescue us? And they maybe for a moment then even doubted the goodness of God. But God from his very heart shares right here that he cares for them. He cared for them in their suffering, he heard their cries. And friends, if you don't get an answer straight away from God when you cry out in your distress, Why, oh Lord? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to a loved one? Where are you, Lord? Don't think that he's deaf, don't think that he's not loving. God cares. And it may be that the answer to your prayers is something you won't see for a long time. Or maybe it might even be after you pass away that God answers the prayers that you prayed. That might have been the experience of many of the Israelites as they waited for God to answer their prayers. And so God then tells Moses how he's going to do it. Verse 8, he says, I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. He said, I am going to rescue them. It's going to be an emergency evacuation. God is going to rescue his people. Will he keep his promises? Yeah, always does. Let's wait and see how he's going to do it. And and I've got to say that, you know, sometimes when people will go through tough times, we say to say to them, I say to you, you say to me, remember that God keeps His promises. And it's kind of sometimes I think that we've devalued the currency of that sort of statement. It's like, oh, God keeps His promises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you're saying is just keep smiling. It's like, no, this is a thing. God keeps His promises. He really does. And he's made a lot of them, and every one of them has come true. So, when you are uncertain, when you are stressed, when you are sad, when you're happy, when you're unsure about life, grab your Bibles, grab your memory verses, remember that he keeps his promises. This is not some sort of trite, kind of like, you know, greeting card sort of, you know, smile and smile. It's no, God keeps his promises. We're going to see it with spectacular pyrotechnics very shortly. So how is he going to do this? Well, he, he firstly needs to tell his own people that it's worthwhile leaving the land that they've lived for 400 years. That's a long time. Europeans have only lived in Australia for you know, a bit over half that time. This is really their home. And he's saying, we're going to have to get you out of there. And so Moses does tell them that, and then eventually they get on board. But there's somebody else that they're going to have to get on board to let them be em- evacuated, and that is Pharaoh. Pharaoh. God's got to get Pharaoh to agree to the evacuation, to get all of his people out of there. How is he going to do that? Well, he's, really, he's going to speak to Pharaoh in the only language that Pharaoh understands, and that is judgment. God was going to rescue his people by his judgment. And that's another reason why judgment is so good, which we'll come to in a moment. But here's the plan, verses 19 and 20. God said to Moses, No, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand forces him. So I will raise my hand and I will strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of miracles among them. And then at last he will let you go. Salvation will come through judgment. That's the way it's going to work. It's only through the judgment that the salvation will occur and it will happen through all kinds of miracles among them. You bet this is an extraordinary moment in the history of God's people. It's an extraordinary moment in the history of the world, what we see here unfolding before us. The salvation is going to be spectacular, and the evil king will be spectacularly defeated. And, and what's more, not ju- they're not just going to get out like people escaping the flames with only the clothes on their back. Uh-uh. Verse 21, I will cause the Egyptians to look favourably on you. They will give you gifts when you go so you will not leave empty-handed. It's wonderful. It's amazing. They plundered the Egyptians because the Egyptians gave them their stuff. Oh, do you want all my jewellery? Do you want all my possessions? Take them on your way. And so they did. It's a fresh reminder, friends, that God's grace is extravagant. You know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about people being evacuated from China and things like that and some people saying, oh, we really didn't like what it was like in Christmas Island kind of thing. It was kind of maybe better back in China or something like that. God's people say a similar thing when they're sent out in the desert and they don't have the same food that they like. But but to use this sort of imagery, it's kind of like they got picked up in, in one of those private jets that's got everything in it. It's got the nicest of everything and it, absolute five-star extravagance Well, with God's grace, it's 10 star. You know, his his extravagance is extravagant. I was trying to think of a good verse from the New Testament that would sum this up. Ephesians 1 really nails it. Verse 7, he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, it is as good as it gets. The extravagance of the salvation is unspeakable almost. We don't fully experience it all the time and it's not always easy, but this is what God has done for us. Don't forget that. Anyways, we go back to Egypt. We now know that Moses has received God's plan. And so Moses goes back to Egypt so that he'll tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Uh, Pharaoh didn't like that idea. He won't budge. And so the harder that Moses pushes, the harder that Pharaoh resists. And you've got to wonder, why didn't Pharaoh get impressed by all the amazing miracles? Why was he so stubborn? Well, the short answer is because he's evil and he hates God. That'd do, wouldn't it? But something more happens. We read in chapter 7 of Exodus, verse 3, that God said, I will make Pharaoh's heart stubborn so that I can multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Did you see that? God actually said that he would make Pharaoh's heart more stubborn. Now Pharaoh already in his heart of hearts hated God and hated his people. But God kind of like multiplies that in him. I find that a little bit hard to understand and to comprehend. You're kind of trying to see how is it that God can be sovereign over all things and at the same time judge us for our own behaviour. This is another one of those situations. Pharaoh was very clear in what he was doing. He knew exactly what was happening and he understood his will. But at the same time, God is involved in hardening his heart. So how do we get our heads around that? Well, it turns out that the apostle Paul, writing thousands of years later in the book of Romans chapter 9, talked specifically about Pharaoh as he answered this very question. Let's pick up this from Romans chapter 9 verse 14. Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, "I will show mercy to whoever I cho- to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose." So, Paul says, it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. As we look at this, this quote here from Exodus 33, we see that God's judgment is linked with mercy. This is the whole point of these four talks on the judgment of God. And the Apostle Paul absolutely nails it. You see judgment, you see mercy. You see judgment, you see mercy. Glory as well. Verse 17 of Romans 9. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So Paul says, so you see, God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. This is kind of a Christian commentary within the Bible on the events of Exodus. God has a battle between him, the king of the universe, and between Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And you're thinking, who's going to win? It's like, duh, we know what's going to happen. And we know that God is going to use this to show how good he is. But how is it fair? How is it fair for Pharaoh's heart to be hardened in that way? Well, Paul goes on, verse 19, Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? Fair point. But Paul says, no, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, Why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have the right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration, you know, a beautiful ornate vase, and another to throw garbage into, a horrible bin made out of clay? In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, He's still very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. And he does this, this is key, he does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. This is right where the action is. These are the glasses through which we need to see what's happening here in Exodus. God is good all the time. His mercy is great. And in the end, judgment and mercy is all about the glory of God. God's judgment leads him to show anger to some and mercy to others. And in the end, it's all about showing his glory. So how's it all going to pan out? Well, back to Exodus, we see that Pharaoh is going to resist any temptation to give in to the impressive signs and wonders, the the terrifying signs and wonders from God. And he's just going to keep saying, no, 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 okay, no, 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 okay, no, no, no. Chapter 7, verse 4, God says, "...even then Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you. So I will bring down my fist on Egypt." Then I will rescue my forces, my people, the Israelites, from the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. The good, 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 good God, the great and glorious God is going to say, I'll show you my glory, and it's going to be through my glorious judgment. It's right there, right there in front of us. He's going to bring down his fist on Egypt, and the harder that Pharaoh resists, the harder God will push. And it's going to make God look awesome. And God's people are going to cheer. And all of this is to show the glorious name of God. Verse 5, when I raise my powerful hand and bring out the Israelites, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. One after another, God brought plagues upon the Egyptians. Moses threatened Pharaoh with disasters if he ignored God, and Pharaoh kept disobeying God. I'd love to go into it all, but you probably know it, and if you don't, have a look at it. But these are the plagues, water turning to blood, frogs, lice, lives, livestock pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the killing of firstborn males. These plagues were powerful, but they were dreadful. A lot of people were, would have been just in the deepest of despairs because of that knucklehead pharaoh who just said, no, 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 no. But ultimately the plagues showed the glory of God. They showed his glory and they showed his kindness and God protected his people. It's interesting, in a lot of these plagues, you'd think, oh, well, they all got affected, they all got affected. God protected his own people, which I think is another sign of his sovereignty in all of this. And so in chapter 8, verse 22, God said, this time I will spare the people of the region of Goshen where my people live. No flies will be found there. Then you will know that I am the Lord and that I am present even in the heart of your land." I will make a clear distinction between my people and your people and this miraculous sign will happen tomorrow. Put it in your diaries, it's happening. And so it did. And God's people were spared from the judgment of God. But the final of the ten plagues was by, worst, by far the worst, really, as God sent a plague that would kill all of the firstborn males in Egypt, human and animal. This is to be the most painful judgment of all. And the grief in the nation of Egypt must have been just extraordinary. But the Lord told Moses to send, to tell his own people, some instructions that would save them from the pain that was happening. He was going to save them from the plague on the firstborn males. What they had to do was to select an, a lamb to, to bring into that, have with them in their household, a lamb or a young goat. And we read in Exodus 12, 6 and 7, take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this first month. And then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight And they are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. Why are they to do that? Why do they need to take the blood of the lamb and smear it all over the door? Verses 12 and 13. On that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt For I'm the Lord, and they're just fakes. But the blood on your door will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. Pass over. I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. And that's exactly what happened. A day of glorious judgment. The blood of the Lamb protected God's faithful people from the most potent plague of all. The blood protected God's faithful people. Sounds familiar? Yeah. And how were they to respond? How were they to respond as they experienced this salvation? How were they to respond as they looked around and they heard the screaming and the crying and the mourning of their next-door neighbours who did not do this? They're to celebrate. Verse 14. This is a day to remember. Each year, from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all time. They were to have a party, a special meal to celebrate this judgment. How do you feel about that? It's interesting, isn't it? Why would God want them to do that? It's because his judgment and his mercy is so glorious that they've got to remember it. They've got to celebrate it. They've got to rejoice in it. And thousands of years later... The Bible tells us about a particular group of men who had gathered for the Passover and that was Jesus and his disciples the night before he died. He brought them there and there they remembered God's glorious judgment. They remembered how the angel of death passed over God's faithful people and by the blood of the lamb they were saved. And then Jesus at that Passover meal says this is my blood of the new covenant the new covenant drink this in remembrance of me this is my body which will be broken for you eat this in remembrance of me something even greater than the passover is about to happen before your very eyes and we will celebrate it as well but we'll talk more about that next week Because last week we had glorious judgment in Eden, this week glorious judgment in Egypt, next week it's glorious judgment at Easter, before next week after that is glorious judgment at the end times. But anyway, this all happened, and then, well, how did the Exodus story finish? Well, I'm just going to skim through, but chapter 12, verse 31, Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. Get out, he ordered. Leave my people and take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you said, and be gone. Go, but bless me as you leave. So all the Egyptians urged the people of Israel to get out of the land as quickly as possible, for they thought, we're all going to die, not just the firstborns. And God's people walked out of Egypt, just like God said, But it didn't end there because Pharaoh changed his mind again and said, oh, hang on, as they're running away, I might send my army after them. Verse 13, but Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. It's going to be awesome. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Uh, when people tell me to stay calm, it usually does the opposite. It's like, whoa, what do you mean, stay calm? Well, they would have been under great stress because there they are, just plodding along, mums with their strollers and all their stuff in the armies, brum, 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 and Moses says, "Don't worry about it; it'll be fine." It's like, whoa, really? Verse twenty-one: So Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water. Wow. With a strong east wind, and the wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. And so the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground, with walls of water on each side. And then the Egyptians, all the Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers, chased them into the middle of the sea, but Just before dawn, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted their chariot wheels, making their chariots difficult to drive. And they said, let's get out of here, away from these Israelites, the Egyptians shouted. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. The Lord fought for his people. And why? Why did the Lord fight for his people? Because Exodus 14.4, we read that once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will chase after you. I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. And after this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God's judgment saved his people and showed his glory. And this is why it is truly glorious. It is a glorious judgment. Pharaoh was an evil, evil man. Up there with Hitler. And as people rejoiced with the death of Hitler, so we should rejoice with the death of Pharaoh. After all, when the very embodiment of evil stands up against God and his people, when that battle is powerfully won, it is natural and good to celebrate. Kind of weird in a way to celebrate after war. After the great wars of the 20th century, there was great celebration, even though everybody knew somebody who had passed away, and maybe many. There was celebration because it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing For God's people to celebrate the Passover. And in fact, immediately after this, in Exodus chapter 15, there's a whole song where they sing, Hooray! You know, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Remember that one? There's a whole song about it because they rejoiced in the victory. And even though the plagues brought such terror and death, God still wanted them to celebrate the victory. He wanted his people to celebrate the victory. He wants us today to celebrate the victory of his judgment. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about obeying the Lord's command to celebrate his judgment? It can be hard to get our heads around. But I wonder if it's sometimes because we don't really understand what God is like and why his victory matters so much. Maybe we're not that offended when people attack the glory of God. Maybe we're not that offended when people are shy about the judgment of God. And if that's you, as it is me, we need to repent of that and we need to embrace the judgment of God because it shows loud and clear his mercy and his glory. And as we do that, we can expect that the glory of the Lord will go out and that people will recognise the Lord for who he is and come to him running for refuge and finding salvation with us in Christ. Let me pray. Our great and glorious Father, we thank you so much for the salvation that you won for your people by the blood of the Lamb in the Passover, but far more for the blood of the Lamb that was shed for us at the first Easter. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would forgive us for when we are ashamed of your judgment, but that you would bring in us a passion for your glory and that we would tell people of your mercy. And we pray, Lord, we plead, Lord, that there would be many, many, many people who would now see the glory of you and know your mercy and find refuge in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.